This is an art attack? This is an art attack. This is Art Attack! Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hey guys, welcome back. Just want to say we recently hit 500 subscribers on Patreon, so thank you so much. It's been a journey. Do us a favor if you haven't already, uh, give us a five-star rating, give us a like on your app. However you're listening, we'd appreciate it. It's time to go hoarding. So You didn't even do it right. It's How am I supposed to do it's, it? It's time to go hoard up. Oh, you're right. And I call myself a Wet Movie 1 fan. Luke and I were, of course, watching our favorite YouTube personality, Wet Movie 1, like we always do. And we're going to assume at this point, you know, if you don't know who Wet Movie 1 is, you're not a serious listener. This is the price of admission for Michael and Us Nation. You got to know about the random YouTubers we watch. We were watching a video of his from a few months ago. I think it was called selling my DVD collection, where he wasn't selling his whole DVD collection. No, of course not. Just part of it. And I gotta say, I was a little betrayed by this because (laughs) every video he talks about hoarding. Mm -hmm. Now he's, when he goes out shopping, he identifies as a hoarder. And a hoarder does not sell their belongings. A hoarder just accumulates more and more. Well, I mean, he was he was pointing out that he had the Steelbook edition of Beetlejuice that was still in the package, but then he also had the anniversary edition and, uh, you know, he was in a very uh, utilitarian way trying to get rid of one of them. Don't you think that's fair? Yeah, but I think the true hoarder, the true fan, would want to have all... Like, you, you, if you get a copy of Beetlejuice, you would say, but my collection isn't complete. I've got to have all the variations of Beetlejuice. The thing I respect about Wet Movie, I mean, you know, we, we're kind of making fun of him, but... Ultimately, I think the three of us, you, me, and Wet Movie One, share a similar philosophy. We're all committed modernists when it comes to our stuff, which foreshadows a little bit about what we're going to be talking about on this episode. But I mean, what I mean by that is that it's important for there to be physicality in our possessions, particularly when it comes to books or vinyl, which I, I have a lot of, or films. You know, you look at this guy's room, which frequently makes it's that's kind of one of the main settings of his YouTube channel. And he is just surrounded on all sides by like just junk, like just things that he gets at, you know, these yard sales. And what are those swap meets he likes to go to? There's also a a thing that he subscribes to, which I think is the nerd block or the nerd box. Oh, there's that. And then there's also the horror, the horror block. Right. Where it's like every month you get a box that's, you know, random horror DVDs or merch. Paraphernalia. Yeah. yeah. Like you can get a little Ghostbusters Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man or basically it's stuff that is warehouse overstock that they needed to get rid of in some way. Yeah, it's like every film will have random promotional material and whatever you didn't get rid of at the premiere, you know, you got to get rid of it somehow. And it turns out that there's a market for it and you can kind of package it like it's rare novelty. And because it's a mystery, you get a mystery box, you don't know what's in it. You can foist this garbage on people that they wouldn't buy otherwise. <laughs> I, I love those videos where it's like mystery, you know, un, unboxing, you know, you get a full 15 minutes of just pulling these like, here's a plush Michael Myers from the 90th Halloween remake or yeah. that kind of thing. We make fun of this particular YouTuber, but we all have a, a similar philosophy. You know, I actually identify, I was saying when we were watching his videos, he's just surrounded by all this stuff. You know, why doesn't he why doesn't he get rid of some of it? He is just completely surrounded by junk. But on the other hand, I don't think he would be satisfied if he just had all those 10,000 straight to bargain bin movies on a single hard drive. It's important that there be physicality to them. And I feel exact same way. Oh, me too. Uh, I when I moved recently, you know, I, I realized I had this kind of trove of, uh, of CDs and, you know, CDs are a physical medium. But they're not, they've got nothing on vinyl. You know, vinyl has this, because it's it's not just physical, it's also analog. So the process which plays it is physical. It's also just, you know, bigger and brighter and more vibrant, which is why I've collected a fair bit of it. I've been thinking about this a bit in relation to a few weeks ago, I went to the Nitrate Film Festival in Rochester, which is something I do every year. Oh yeah, tell us tell us about that. The, I didn't. I hadn't heard of this, but it sounds really interesting. They show a number of films on nitrate film stock, which was a type of film stock that was discontinued in the early 1950s because too many 
projection booths were getting caught on fire. So they moved on to safety film stock. And so, you know, the prints themselves are historic objects because these are prints from 60 or 70 years ago. And, you know, they showed Louis Benuel's and Salvador Dali's film, L'Age d'Or. And this print of L'Age d'Or used to be owned by Henri Langlois, who ran the Cinémathèque Française. And he got it from the film's original Paris theatrical release. So there's so much history associated with it. And, uh, you know, people like Quentin Tarantino, you know, purists for celluloid will often say every scratch in a print tells a story. And, you know, that sounds a little corny, but it's also true. You watch this print and you think about those audiences in the early 1930s in Paris who were watching this, this very same print. Mm -hmm. Then you think about Henri Langlois was showing this same print in the 1950s. And who knows, were Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard in the audience watching this exact same print? And now here we are probably watching the very last time this print will ever be projected. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's this long story and you don't get that in a digital file well with a digital file you know it's infinitely reproducible it's a replica it's a facsimile Mm -hmm. you know and it seems superficial to be given that through digital reproduction something can just be well reproduced Mm -hmm. you know identical to the original version and in some cases from a technical perspective enhanced but there's no doubt to me that that something is lost i agree with you Mm -hmm. Like I still have to, you know, I still have to get ready and everything for my day before I head on out. But when I'm talking about randomness, like of my collection, like I have the new, you know, Blu-ray steel book of Beetlejuice that I got from FYE and everything. It's a really cool looking steel book. But I also have the 20th anniversary deluxe edition, which it has pretty much all the same special features, but with a lenticular, you know, cover on it. Do I need both editions, you know, of this? You know what I mean? That's how that's how you know sick and you know sick my collection is and kind of weird like. Which one should I keep and which one should I get rid of or should I just keep both of them? To those who have somehow missed out on our wet movie cool duder discussion over the years, <laughs> uh, one of the things they often do in the videos is go to comic and uh, sort of sci-fi conventions, which, you know, these conventions used to be like Comic-Con used to be genuine niche culture. But now it's where, you know, all the studios go, all the big stars go whether it's Game of Thrones or The Walking Dead. You can, the you can, you can, you can get are. your nerdy, uh, you know, niche subcultural interest in, you know, the latest uh, Christopher Nolan movie <laughs> or whatever the small art house workshop at Comcast has turned out. Luke sounds very snobby and elitist here, but he was very interested <laughs> earlier today when I sent him the trailer for a new TV show that's coming out later this year called Picard, <laughs> starring Patrick Stewart, reprising his... Sir Patrick Stewart to you, oh, troll. Excuse me. Starring Sir Patrick in his signature role as Jean-Luc Picard. Now, you're excited for the show, right? Well, I mean, I think that the odds that it will be good are probably pretty low, but uh, Patrick Stewart's one of the greats, and I will watch the shit out of that. But it, it was occurring to me since we were watching wet movie as we frequently do before we record you know just to get the juices flowing we were talking about these conventions they go to you know where many of the sort of nerd franchises for want of a better phrase are are kind of you know newer like you know the walking dead you mentioned things like that but a lot of them you know star wars is everywhere they're things they're kind of um updated versions of of you know things that are still going franchises is the correct term things that we were interested in as as kids and it occurred to me recently, I think I was in like a kitchenware store and they had a uh, various Harry Potter branded and Star Wars branded, you know, expensive kitchenware. And it occurred to me that as with these comic book conventions or whatever that, that the wet movie crew goes to, Star Trek was not actually represented there at all. Now I say this with the caveat that of course, Star Trek Discovery is airing at the moment. J.J. Abrams, you know, I don't know if he made all those three. He, uh, he was certainly involved he was in, in some way. Yeah, with, he, with made, he at films. least made the first one. I haven't seen all three of them. I think I maybe got about halfway through the second one. So, you know, there has been an attempt to do with Star Trek kind of what's been done with Star Wars with other things like it. But, you know, Star Trek, I think, has kind of eluded this. And I think that's interesting. I don't think... We haven't really been able to have a proper conversation about Star Trek because I've watched ungodly amounts of it and you have not. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was a kid, I always kind of regarded Star Trek as something that was sort of talky and boring and a little nerdy. And I say that with affection 
because I watch these new Star Trek things that come out, the J.J. Abrams movie, or what I hear about the Discovery show, and they do seem to be going after this Star Wars style, very fast-paced, more violent. And I think that's a little a little sad. Like something about Star Trek that was always kind of charming was the fact that it was proudly nerdy and niche. Yeah, and, and I think that it's a it's a vindication of Star Trek that it it is kind of mostly survived. And that you know, if you go on to Netflix, I mean, one of the things Netflix is best for is they've got the original series, they got the Next Generation, they got Deep Space Nine, uh, they got Voyager. If you if you want a chaser for all those things, Netflix has you know has a lot of Star Trek. And you know, if you'd have told me at age twelve. When I was paying like $20 to get a single episode of Star Trek The Next Generation on VHS <laughs> with no special features and with a bunch of trailers at the beginning, mm-hmm. man, oh man. But I, I think that the lesson here is that when so, like Star Trek was genuinely nerdy in a way that it was not ever, I think, quite a, as mass market a thing as Star Wars. It's not that, I mean, Star, Star Trek is not some like innocent, pure thing that hasn't been commodified. If you watch the movie Trekkies, which, you know, we should actually watch some point for the show because mm. it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, of course, there's a whole culture of collecting and, you know, uh, things like that. And Star Trek had its own convention circuit. Oh, it still quite, does. quite independent of these other conventions, too. Yeah, but I think the lesson here is that sometimes these things do kind of survive. I mean, Star Trek, it would be maybe... It doesn't quite feel right to call it a subculture given that it's big and, you know, there are, you know, blockbuster movies associated with it and stuff. But I think there is something in being sort of so genuinely nerdy and so kind of intricate and insular as a universe that makes it somewhat defy the process that all these other things have undergone. And I think that's good. Well, you know, before we get into the subject of the week, we were talking earlier about your relationship with mass or or let's say low culture or maybe pop culture. Yeah. And you were telling me how... You feel like you've softened over the years towards it, or you've become more generous towards popular culture, which, of course, is is my my playpen. Right. Well, I mean, that yeah, that's partly it. I mean, I, I guess uh, part part of what I was saying is just that I used to have a, a bunch of kind of arbitrary prejudices about like certain things that I just was like, I'll never be interested in that. So an example would be the films of Miyazaki, which, you know, now I love, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, part of that just had to do with my mom and my brother used to watch them. They watched them in English. You know, I didn't really have any context for what they were. I just, they were, I was like, oh, they're watching a, you know, cartoon or whatever. And now I'm a lot more open. You know, I, I, I don't think I have those kinds of self-imposed like, mental barriers. Um, another example was, you know, last summer I decided I was going to read Dune. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a type of, you know, slightly cultish, but I mean, you know, mass market paperback, ultimately pop sci-fi novel, that that's the kind of thing I would have avoided in the past. And, you know, I was finally able to just enjoy it because I let myself. Why um, do you think you would have avoided it in the past? What what were those barriers, do you think? I mean, some of them were completely arbitrary. And, and maybe, as you were suggesting, a kind of a, a, a somewhat arbitrary taxonomy of kind of high and low art and you know Mm -hmm. wanting to avoid the stuff that i thought was at the bottom but i mean i think over time you realize that culture is just inherently interesting and something doesn't have to be do you know frank herbert is not a brilliant prose stylist but he is a great world builder you might say the same thing about george R. R. martin not a great novelist but in some ways a great storyteller but anyways i think culture just you know, there is something inherently interesting about it because it's something that we're all participating in, whether we like it or not. I'm, I'm still very kind of hardened in a lot of my tastes. I mean, you know, I'm obsessed by a lot of things that are old, like like jazz. Like I'm fascinated by the the, the form of jazz and the, and the history of jazz and the sound of it, things like that. Uh, I'm fascinated by a lot of things that I think most people would, would consider pretty archaic, but I'm I'm more open to to other things now than I used to be, that's for sure. I remember I've been to the Art Gallery of Ontario with you, and you were very fascinated by the medieval art. Oh, yeah. You know, particularly those very intricate sculptures. Oh, it's um, my favorite. You know, stained glass windows, that yeah. sort of thing. But, Craftsmanship. Uh, but not a lot of patience for, say, the contemporary art. Um, no, I mean, and that might have had something to do with just the exhibit uh, we went uh, to. I, I may be uh, mixing AGO trips in my head, but <laughs> it, I think it was probably the same trip. You know, we were looking at the medieval art, you know, it's this beautiful, beautiful iconography, uh, hand-sculpted stuff from the, 
the 12th century, beautiful, intricate wood carvings created through tremendous expertise and, and, and imbued with, I think, tremendous cultural and, and religious and political meaning. It's not difficult for me to, to enjoy being in a room like that. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the same trip that there was an exhibit in the kind of modern art section, which is higher up in the building, where one of the exhibits was just a kind of a, a white wall emblazoned with the words art is political and that is you know that is where post-modernity really loses it's like what are you to what what is the what is the project here it's just it's intending to be a radical statement of aesthetics and politics but it's more an admission of aesthetic and political impotence than anything else i think Talking about that high-low barrier, for my whole life, I've always been very fascinated by low art. But I also, something that I've come to realize over the years is, I think for a lot of my life, I was not fully comfortable with the erosion of the barrier between high and low. Yeah. So I bring up Roger Ebert on the podcast almost every week, which is strange. But, you know, for better or worse, he's been sort of an intellectual touchstone for me. And there's a review that he wrote of a movie called Shaolin Soccer. Shaolin Soccer, if you've seen it, is a great Hong Kong comedy by Stephen Chow. And the opening paragraph says, Shaolin Soccer is like a poster boy for my theory of the star rating system. Every month or so, I get an anguished letter from a reader wanting to know how I could possibly have been so ignorant as to award three stars to, say, Hidalgo, which was like a a silly action movie. Oh, I remember Hidalgo with Viggo Mortensen. That's right. (laughs) While dismissing, say, Dogville with two stars. And he says later, The star rating system is relative, not absolute. When you ask a friend if Hellboy is any good, you're not asking if it's any good compared to Mystic River. You're asking if it's any good compared to The Punisher. And my answer would be, on a scale of 1 to 4, if Superman is 4, then Hellboy is 3 and The Punisher is 2. In the same way, if American Beauty gets 4 stars, the United States of Leland clocks in at about 2. And then he says of Shaolin Soccer, It is piffle, yes, but superior piffle. You do not want to know if I thought it was as good as Lost in Translation. I find that review like one of Roger Ebert's most interesting reviews because it suggests this like open-mindedness, this willing to take things on their own terms from everywhere. But what it also does is reinforce these kind of arbitrary barriers. Yeah. You know, what I want to say to him is actually Shaolin Soccer is better than American Beauty. Right. You right. know, it, it's it's actually better than Lost in Translation. Do, why, why do you think that, that, why did he select American Beauty, which I've not seen for some time? Why do you think he selected that as... as... Like, what, what function do you see it playing in that piece? Um, I guess just like a signifier for kind of like a, a relatively highbrow, you know, an, an awards caliber movie. So, 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 right. So that's what I was looking for. Yeah. So, so he, he chose American Beauty because as invoked here, he wants to, he's reaching for something, yeah, that has the award show glam. And for him, that's where, that's what the high yeah. art is. Yeah. That's interesting. And so I feel like, you know, when I was growing up, my interest in trash culture had to be sort of couched in my head in in that sort of... Quasi-ironic, perhaps? Yeah, quasi-ironic, perhaps, or this sort of thing like, well, we understand it's not as good as this other thing, but mm. on, on its own terms. Mm. And I feel like a particular challenge of being a mature consumer of art is understanding that the high-low barriers are arbitrary and very ideological, but also, you know, having taste. Right. And, and knowing that some art is better than others. Well, th- this, this I think, is the challenge. And I, I wouldn't quite go so far as to say that they're, they're arbitrary. Uh, I think that the challenge is that the whole the category of high art, you know, seems to me to come from that's the art of the Renaissance. It's the art of kind of the, the new post-feudal middle classes in, you know, Western and Southern Europe. It's inherently patrician. You know, it's the opera, right? Uh-huh. It's it, uh, symphonic and chamber music, things like that. Is it a value judgment, the term high art? That's an interesting question. I'm not I'm not sure if I fully have a satisfactory answer. I mean, for me, the signposts here, you know, you have high art, which is the progeny of European patricians and, and patricians elsewhere. And then you have low art, which originally, I guess, just meant folk art and things like that, but I think has increasingly come to mean stuff that's mass produced. Mm-hmm. It's a modernist concept. And I think that for me, the way I try to resolve the tension that, that you're describing here is that I, I don't I don't think you, you exactly do away with the concept of high art. The problem of, of high art that's, you know, exclusive and 
you know, like going to see the opera in 18th century Vienna or something, which you mostly only do if, you know, if you were if you were a patrician. It's not that that art was bad. In fact, it was the product of people who had endless le- leisure time because they were patricians or because they were skilled craftspeople. And so they were just able to devote all this time to mastering, you know, all of Beethoven's violin and piano sonatas or, or whatever. The problem is a very simple one. And the problem is the exclusivity of it, both in terms of being able to do it and being able to consume it. And under, you know, mass production, I think you have uh, something like the opposite problem, which is that you have this incredible volume of stuff that's mass produced in really the opposite way for it's, you know, it's not the product of a folk culture because folk culture has produced a lot of art, which I think actually now this is where the high low thing gets complicated because there's a lot of folk art that now I think we would think of as, as being kind of high art. But mass produced culture is something different. It's produced for instrumental reasons it's produced for marketability it's produced for broadness and i think that when i kind of try to navigate my own instincts about art this is where i really you know locate the critical impulse at the heart of it which is that i i do have a problem i do have a kind of a distaste for for a lot of things that are produced as mass mediums especially things that are produced you know they only exist as mass mediums you know, they don't even have a kind of a, a history as, as anything else, as a, as a folk culture uh, or as a subculture or anything like that. I think mass art, commodified art, is less interesting and less expressive because of this instrumental process that undergirds it, uh, which is kind of industrial. You know, it's the same as, you know, we make movies, blockbusters especially, which we've talked about a lot on the show, in much the same way as kind of, you know, Fordist production created uh, cars in the 1950s, things like that. Except we're now doing it on an even larger scale. It's horizontally and vertically integrated. It's, you know, there's mass merchandising. It's entire, not just films, but individual scenes and, and, and set pieces within films basically being designed by committee. You got to have the person that that's going to turn it into a video game level after. you got to have the person who's going to merchandise all the monsters. And the whole film is built around that. Those aren't kind of secondary things. Those are central to the process. You know, that's one of the reasons why I've vented a lot on this show and elsewhere about, you know, not particularly being into, like, Marvel movies and things (laughs) like that to end with a bit of a whimper there. That's why we need to rigorously maintain the high and low art distinction (laughs) to to make clear that liking Marvel movies is not acceptable. (laughs) In, in fact, people should just like the things I like, like, you know, Godzilla movies and the Three Stooges and, you know. The, the, like, high art. Yeah, high, low art that should be high art, yeah. I, I It's a bit of a digression. I don't think I, I brought it up on, on the show before, but I recently appeared on the inaugural episode of a new podcast from Vox, which is talking about American TV and its its impact on culture and politics. So you explained it? <laughs> That's right. Uh, the West Wing explained. Uh, uh-huh. But yes, uh, I was invited on to talk about uh, the West Wing. And um, I had to listen to the episode recently and because uh, we recorded a few months ago and it just debuted. And it's a really immaculately produced podcast. I was amazed listening to some of the other folks, many of whom were journalists, who, who appeared. You know, I think... It's safe to say that I was a rare dissenting voice on, you know, this show This show is not good. And I won't rehash my critique of the West Wing here. It's probably old hat at this point. But, you know, there were so many people saying things like, you know, oh, yeah, I'm in Britain. And, you know, amidst the turmoil of Brexit and stuff, I love watching the show because it's so idealistic. You know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And when I when I wrote my, my essay about the West Wing a couple of years ago, one of the reactions that I got, which I was a little bit saddened by, and it was, you know, it was my own fault for not maybe not making this clearer in the essay, although maybe it would have lessened the impact, its impact, I'm not sure, was I think a lot of people read it as, as a prescription to not watch the show. For a lot of people, their politics have become kind of indistinguishable from what they consume, or maybe I think it's maybe the other way around in some in many cases. But that really wasn't it at all. The only reason something like The West Wing is even worthy of of a critique is because people extrapolate so much politically from it, because uh, some people look at this extremely drab, unimaginative, smug, self-satisfied bit of American liberal culture. Some people look at that and they say, "This this is what politics either is or what it ought to be. Um, And we just need to get back to this. That's why it's worthy of a political critique, because people have imbued it with a political meaning. But I really wish I'd made clear, like, like, look, the the West Wing, this is, and this is one of the problems with 
high and low art. I mean, you you not we don't always watch things to be enlightened by them. Sometimes it's okay to watch things to be entertained. I watched a lot of the West Wing before I had you know the same critique of it. It's totally possible to watch and enjoy the show. It's it's well done. You know, Martin Sheen is a delight. There's there's a lot to so what, lot what you're fun. saying is if I go about my daily ritual of being degraded by capitalism <laughs> from morning to night and. You know, finally, I return home to my miserable house and I look at all the debts I haven't paid off and my GoFundMe for my open heart surgery is stalling. And I decide to just enjoy the snap, crackle and pop of Aaron Sorkin's dialogue for an hour that night. I'm not immoral. (laughs) I don't think I would have quite put it in those terms. But yeah, that is what I'm saying. And I think a lot of the discussions around art, aesthetics, you know, music even, I think a lot of the discussions around art and, and, you know, aesthetics and politics today, there's perhaps a little less disagreement than there sometimes appears because the, the wires get kind of crossed between people critiquing things as, you know, prescriptive art and people critiquing things as entertainment. And what I was trying to do with writing about the West Wing was very much the former, I think people should be entertained by things that they like and that it's okay to like things, you know? And that also goes for, you know, things that are that are maybe considered a bit problematic or that, you know, the film that, that you know, the old film that's that's great, you know, like the Hitchcock movie that's great but has a really retrograde depiction of the female characters or something. It's possible to have a nuanced perspective on these things and the, and the big problem today comes in everything being treated simultaneously as, as prescriptive and political and also as entertainment because oftentimes those two things can't really go hand in hand. Because consumption is the only power that a lot of people have. Exactly. You know, they're often encouraged to exercise that power by, say, boycotting the work of a cer- certain problematic filmmakers right. and, and voting with or, their dollars. Or going, you know, uh, do you remember, I mean, do you remember the BuzzFeed article a few years ago that was, here are 10 nakedly capitalist ways you can support the new Ghostbusters film? Right. And I mean, the the, the tone of it was sort of aspiring to this, like, tongue-in-cheek whatever but it wasn't tongue-in-cheek it was quite literally uh you going to see this movie and buying the merch that was one of that was like buy go see it twice buy the merch so this is what happens when you treat consumption as a central point of kind of political struggle and contestation is it is just literally give give your money to corporations but give them to these ones and not give it to these ones and not other ones (laughs) well speaking of art and culture and consumption We watched an episode of the classic 1980 BBC documentary series, The Shock of the New, an eight-part series written and hosted by the great art critic Robert Hughes, surveying the history of art in the 20th century. And the episode we watched was episode two, The Powers That Be. World War I destroyed an entire generation. We don't know and we can't even guess what might have been painted or written if the war had never happened. Its imagery of waste, repetition, irony, loss, and pain is so built into our whole idea of modernity that we simply take it for granted. We can't see its alternative. As for the waste of minds, we know the names of some who were killed too soon, among the painters Umberto Boccioni and Franz Marc, the sculptor Gaudier Breschka, the architect Saint Elia, the poets Isaac Rosenberg and Wilfred Owen. But for every one of those whose name survives, there must have been scores and possibly hundreds of those who never simply got a chance to develop. And so, if you were to ask, where is the Picasso of England or the Ezra Pound of France, the probable answer is that they're here. This series is a favorite of yours. Yeah, I I love it. I've been watching it for years. And this episode, I think, is probably my favorite because it deals with the relationship between art and, and authority, particularly political authority. And temporarily, it's situated beginning at the the turn of the century right before the advent of kind of mass mechanized warfare with the the first world war and then kind of going through the art of post-bolshevik russia uh and the futurists in in the of the european fascist movement you know people like marinetti you know the art as statecraft is practiced both by stalinists and by mussolini and hitler this is not just visual art it's also sculptures and and architecture and the conclusion is also rather interesting uh, and we'll we'll get to that uh we'll get to that in a little bit but um no this is a favorite of mine i've been wanting to do it on the pod for some time tracing the argument of the episode much of it takes place after the first world war 
and Hughes points out that World War I was this war that was founded and sold on lies and led to death at an unprecedented scale. And in the sort of cafe intellectual scene that emerged in the 1920s, there came various artistic responses to this post-war reality. Beginning in Switzerland and eventually migrating to Germany was Dadaism, which, as I'm sure many of our listeners will know, was a sort of nonsense art, a, a deliberate provocation. Different cultures practiced Dadaism somewhat differently. So when it started in Switzerland, it was intended to almost bring art back down to its basics, bring art back to a sort of sense of playfulness and innocence, a childlike art. But then when it was imported to Germany, it was imbued with more political significance. It was a sort of radical gesture against the culture that had led us to the First World War. Yeah, and, and I should say the first episode of this series, uh, the one that precedes the one we watched, is called The Mechanical Paradise. And it's dealing with a different paradigm, which is right at the, the turn of the century, all this excitement around technology, uh, the construction of things like the Eiffel Tower, you know, this kind of obelisk of you know modernist optimism. Uh, look at these great statues of steel that we're building. Look at the wonderful potential, the emancipatory creative potential of all this uh, of all this machinery and technology. And then the First World War really complicates that uh, because technology becomes an instrument of mass slaughter and destruction. Probably the most famous single example of Dadaist art is Duchamp's urinal, uh, which was, of course, the most famous example of his ready-mades. This sort of ironic idea that the world has all these fascinating objects and all the artist needs to do is just pluck an object and put it into a gallery and voila, you've got an instant piece of art. You know, I think 50 years later or 40 years later, Andy Warhol sort of came up with a synthesis of the ironic Duchampian idea and the pre-war idea of the beauty of technology where he sort of half ironically painted a soup can, but also said, hey, maybe this soup can actually is beautiful. Emerging around the same time as Dada is Expressionism, uh, as we all know, particularly popular in Germany. Robert Hughes describes Expressionism as there are no political solutions, only spiritual ones. Mm -hmm. And so as That's a very, it's very post-war, post-First World War kind of sentiment. Mm -hmm. Much of the uh, great Expressionist art is, of course, very downbeat and depressing and haunted by the death and destruction of war. You know, I'm so used to seeing all these art movements kind of in their own separate rooms of, you know, the Museum of Modern Art. And I, I didn't quite understand until watching this how they interacted with each other at the time, that oftentimes these art movements were sort of at war with each other. So the Dadaists, particularly the German Dadaists, who were very political, regarded the, the Expressionists oftentimes as their enemies. They regarded the Expressionists as inward-looking and narcissistic. Moving away from Germany, uh, Robert Hughes goes to the Soviet Union, which from 1917 to 1925 attempted this radical merger between revolutionary art and politics. Do you want to talk a little bit about this idea? Yeah, so I mean, I think this is one of the kind of, I mean, it's one of the core ideas of, of this documentary and this episode in particular. What I think Hughes regards as sort of noble failure of uh, attempting to merge art and politics, or uh, maybe put another way, put a little bit better, to mobilize art as a, as a tool of, of revolution, a tool of political change and progress which in the 20th century anyway basically very quickly you know in all the examples we have that attempt even though it you know for some years would produce interesting art you know soviet neorealism you know sergey eisenstein who we've talked about before people like that come to mind but basically the revolutionary art and the reactionary art of uh, of nazi germany or, or mussolini's italy it just becomes a tool of political authority of, of state authority and Hughes, you know, has an interesting take on this because his view is, you know, he's a he is a committed modernist. So he's he understands, and I, and I, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy with this idea. I think it animates the way I look at art. Uh, he understands the the significance of people simply believing that art has that kind of potential, and and for him, something is lost, even if that type of art was never really. 
uh, successful, even if it failed in its its intentions. The the attempt to even do it at all uh, is something that we've completely lost sight of, and I think I, I identify with that very strongly. I felt that way when we did that episode on Jean-Luc Godard's political art from the 1970s, yeah. the, the Ziga Vertov group movies that he made, which were this attempt to create a radical Brechtian cinema that through its sheer kind of unpleasantness and its unwillingness to conform to the conventions of commercial narrative cinema were supposed to shock audiences out of their stupor. I mean, that film of his, Tu va bien, where... It's quite literally collapsing, you know, in the Brechtian sense, it's collapsing the fourth wall so that you can see that you were on a set. And the idea was that this was going to, this was going to unleash the revolutionary power of cinema. The cinema embracing its role as kind of a, a facsimile, as an artifice, was going to have revolutionary potential within the context of bourgeois society. Mm-hmm. And it didn't do that, did it? But Well, people <laughs> often sort of use that period as sort of a cudgel to beat Godard with, you yeah. know. Oh, he gave up on, you know, the early funny ones. Yeah. Which are also great. Which but, are which are great. And, yeah. you know, God knows I'd rather watch Breathless again than <laughs> British sounds. But <laughs> you've kind of got to admire the attempt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Back to Shock of the New. Hughes talks about how Russian political art was heavily influenced, not just by the European avant-garde, but also by the success that religion had had with art over the years. Russia had a vast underclass, mostly illiterate, and the easiest way to communicate with them was through visual means. The church had, of course, understood this very early on. And Russia thought, well, if iconography could be used to sell religion, why not politics as well? And as he also points out, state artists were encouraged to be social engineers. We hear from a Russian artist whose name escapes me now that they were discouraged from making images that were mentally destructive. They should make art that gives people a reason to live, which I got to say is where this project loses me a little because that doesn't sound like art to me. Yeah. You know, I think once you start uh, setting boundaries on what art can and should do, that's when art dies. Art needs to art needs to explore truth, you know? It needs to go into difficult realms and, and say things that you might not want to hear. Yeah, and that's why art that's produced in, you know, I mean, the Soviet Union was less repressive than it became in, in, in its early years, but, uh, you know, art produced in the context of political repression uh, and without kind of civil liberties as, you know, the Soviet Union by the 1930s, you know, is not going to be particularly good art. It's going to be very drab and and boring. The uh, Soviet Union in the later half of its existence kind of produced one great filmmaker that we all know, Tarkovsky. Yeah. And he was in no way, you know, the favorite artist, (laughs) the the favorite filmmaker of the powers that be. Wasn't a hit at the the Politburo. Yeah. Uh, Just imagining a bunch (laughs) of like, bureaucrats in the Khrushchev era or something, you know, talking about the screening of uh, Solaris they just saw at the Central Committee, you know, before before talking about the grain rationing or whatever. Today, the People's Republic of China really regards its own film industry as a tool of soft power, and they've taken a very active role in shaping and guiding it. And all these patriotic blockbusters that come out of China, I think, are just absolutely soul crushing. I think it's just one of the most dreadful film industries in the world. So in addition to the Soviets and the communist and socialist left seeing the potential of of art, the revolutionary potential, the Nazis and, and the fascists in Italy and in Spain, you know, they had a similar view that art could be, you know, useful for their own projects. And while we were watching this, a passage from uh, of Marinetti's came to mind. This is quoted in a famous essay by Walter Benjamin called The Work of Art in the Age of Its Reproducibility. And there's no point, I don't need to provide too much context for this. I just think it's an example of how uh, in, in the 1930s, fascists along with revolutionaries really did see a kind of a merger of politics and art in a way that's now difficult to comprehend. So this is, uh, this is from a... Uh, Manifesto Marinetti wrote for the colonial war in Ethiopia. He writes, For 27 years, we futurists have rebelled against the idea that war is anti-aesthetic. We therefore state war is beautiful, because thanks to its gas masks, its terrifying megaphones, its flamethrowers and light tanks, it establishes man's domination over the subjugated machine. War is beautiful because it inaugurates the dreamed-of metalization of the human body. War is beautiful because it enriches a flowering meadow with the fiery orchids of machine guns. 
War is beautiful because it combines gunfire, barrages, ceasefire, scents, and the fragrance of putrefaction into a symphony. War is beautiful because it creates new architectures like those of armored tanks, geometric squadrons of aircraft, spirals of smoke from burning villages, and much more. Poets and artists of futurism, remember these principles of an aesthetic of war, that they may illuminate your struggles for a new poetry and a new sculpture. So this is near the end of Benjamin's essay, and in a line that has been the subject of many a graduate student paper, he concludes by saying that, that fascism represents the aestheticization of politics. Um, and he ends, he concludes by saying communism replies by politicizing art. This is an essay written between December of 1935 and February of 1936, uh, near the, the final years of Benjamin's life. And Benjamin is clearly still working within a framework that is, I guess, antithetical, the one Hughes is advancing in shock of the new, because Benjamin still sees revolutionary potential in socialist and communist art. He sees it as an antidote to fascism. Hughes is Hughes isn't saying that they're equivalent, but he is saying that the project to merge art and politics or art in the service of politics has basically been a failure in most of the most instances it's been tried. And this applies to our own time as well, which kind of brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Shock of the New. Um, and this is a passage I actually think I've read before, way back in Michael and Us season one, season one, but I want to read it again. This is how Hughes concludes. It seems obvious looking back that the artists of Weimar Germany and Leninist Russia lived in a much more attenuated landscape of media than ours, and their reward was that they could still believe in good faith and without bombast that art could morally influence the world. Today the idea has largely been dismissed, as it must be in a mass media society where art's principal social role is to be investment capital, or in the simplest way, bullion. We still have political art, but we have no effective political art. An artist must be famous to be heard, but as they acquire fame, so their work accumulates value and becomes ipso facto harmless. As far as today's politics is concerned, most art aspires to the condition of Muzak. It provides the background hum for power. If the Third Reich had lasted until now, the young bloods of the inner party would not be interested in old fogies like Albert Speer or Arno Brecker, Hitler's monumental sculptor. They would be queuing up to have their portraits silkscreened by Andy Warhol. It is hard to think of any work of art of which one can say, this saved the life of a single Jew, or Vietnamese, or Cambodian. Specific books, perhaps, but as far as one can tell, no paintings or sculptures. The difference between us and the artists of the 1920s is that they thought such a work of art could be made. Perhaps it was a certain naivete that made them think so, but it is certainly our loss that we cannot. So my first response to that is, has Robert Hughes heard of a little musical called Hamilton, <laughs> which, uh, as we oh. all know, is political art um, and is in no way the Muzak uh, to power. Will was, Secondly, there, go, uh, there he goes again against my good friend Andy Warhol. Uh, I, I, I cannot Well, if Andy Warhol's it. your thing, Robert Hughes might not be for you um, <laughs> as, as one of the principal Warhol dissidents. Um, <laughs> Uh, Will was playing some clips from Hamilton the Musical. I'm really sorry to any listeners who 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 like this, but I really can't help myself being mean about it. I you played that you know how does a bastard son of a whore and a Scotsman, <laughs> and and you just kind of left it on, and we got further in it than I've ever gotten because I actually find it physically excruciating. That's funny. I I find it almost charming. Do uh, you? I mean, I think it's terrible, but I also <laughs> find it kind of catchy. Oh God. <laughs> That's political art, right? Is uh, the founding fathers, but you know, it's it's but they're doing a rap musical, 
So I what I okay what I do not understand about Hamilton is okay. how do people not read it? It's just like something that if you had a zany grade seven teacher who comes into class wearing a fake powdered wig and is a little too eager to please, that's it's like what they would come up with. Well, you've got to understand that Donald Trump is the president right now, and uh, you know sometimes about don't hours. don't blame don't <laughs> don't exonerate Hamilton by bringing up Donald Trump. It predates Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, eight years of Republican obstructionism left left a certain kind of person hungry for a better vision. All right, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to sign <laughs> off now. Will's <laughs> pushing my buttons a little too hard. Uh, so you know, in the end of the episode, Hughes tours various notable pieces of 20th century American architecture, mid-century architecture, Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center in Washington, and also the Albany State Capitol which he paints kind of a chilling word portrait of it, talking about the state capital as being this visualization of the centralization of power, that there's no ambiguity in the meaning of it. It's this cold, intimidating hub. Right, and if and, and as he points out, if, if you're a citizen of the state of New York and you're walking by uh, the Capitol building in Albany, it's not like you see yourself really represented by these you know buildings that are full of bureaucrats. He says that our visual language of power is not linked to any one ideology. And he also points out that we do not have an architecture that epitomizes or symbolizes the concept of freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't I don't necessarily think this, but something that became briefly popular in the early part of the 21st century was that kind of gimmicky Frank Gehry sort of architecture. You know, those... Uh, kooky buildings like for example the royal ontario museum here Mm -hmm. um i'm not sure where that sort of brief trend in art fits into his thesis well we'll have to at some point do an episode on his 2004 kind of follow-up documentary which i think it might even be called the new shock of the new something Mm -hmm. like that um in which he remains very pessimistic about the prospects for of, of kind of modern art by the way, as we said, he points out that art in general hasn't hasn't inspired a lot of concrete social change. The examples I can think of where it has have generally been for the worse. Mm-hmm. You know, Birth of a Nation right. uh, revitalized the Ku Klux Klan. Triumph of the Will was certainly an effective film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are other examples that I'm forgetting. I'm not I'm not sure how to explain that. Maybe I'm just you know looking at this in a pessimistic way. Maybe I'm overlooking a lot of examples where art actually did inspire positive social change, but I can't really can't really think of them. I think that folk art has you know has, has fulfilled that function insofar it's, as it's existed in the 20th century. You know, organic folk culture is often just sort of anti-hegemonic by nature, but you know it's because it doesn't tend to be a mass medium. We're a lot less aware of it. How about to use that old Andrew Breitbart idea of politics being downstream from culture, the growing acceptance of various marginalized communities, particularly the the LGBTQ community. I can't think of any one single artwork that has led to society's increasing acceptance or tolerance of LGBTQ people, but I think the cumulative impact of you know for example seeing ellen degeneres on tv every day uh, and a lot of other mainstream personalities um, speaks for itself yeah i mean the, the we we've been asked before we've we've had a version of the same question a number of times about the show because we spent a lot of time talking about the political impotence of various you know tv shows and films and things like that and a lot of people have, have fairly asked you know do you think you know what would a good version of this be you know do you think that there can be kind of progressive art, progressive culture. And I think there can be, but I strongly disagree with, I mean, I think one of the right's big ideological flaws and one of the great, one of the impediments to its success, fortunately, is this assumption that politics is downstream from culture. Um, I don't think it's correct to say that uh, culture is, I mean, culture is clearly political, right? It's it's not um, just dismissing the political importance of culture is is clearly inadequate. But I think it's important to stress that culture isn't politics as such. Politics in this kind of this binary, insofar as there is a symbiotic relationship, politics has a much greater determining impact on the nature and character of art and cultural production than vice versa. Mm-hmm. I, I feel pretty confident in saying that, which is one of the many reasons why treating consumption as politics is a is a flawed idea. And it's you know it's it's hilarious. I think we've talked about it before, but I mean there was that 
was it was it Kellogg's that was they boycotted Breitbart.com or something, and then conservatives. I forgive me if I'm getting the details wrong. The essentials are right, but you know conservatives responded by taking all these photos of we're dumping the Kellogg's down the drain. It's like fuck you, snap, crackle, and pop. I mean the last just you know owning, couple of years have just been yeah that, yeah it, just non- just owning <laughs> owning the libs by just pouring uh, pouring snap, crackle, and pop into the toilet and clogging it forever. But then the libs had their own response, which was tweets like, you know, I just went to my local supermarket and bought every single Snap, Crackle and Pop. And it's like, at the end of the day, you're both buying Rice Krispies. <laughs> you're both buying this company's cereal. Yeah. This is a politics purely about consumption that is functionally indistinguishable and is completely impotent in any in any meaningful way. It does not have any real impact on the world at all, except for making the shareholders at Kellogg's a little happier. Now watch this drive. Thank <laughs> you.